Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Our Strange Guys podcast. I have a special guest reprising his role on this podcast, backed by popular demand, John Tenney. John, how you doing this evening? I'm doing well, thank you. I hope you're doing good too. Yeah, we're hanging in there. You know, UFOs, man, they're in... <laughs> the po- the popular eye right now. Everybody's looking at them. They're making the New York Times again, and uh, everybody seems to be on board, but we we have factions now. There's some mudslinging and stuff going on, and there's the pro-TTSA people, and then there are those that are a little more critical of them, shall we say. You definitely seem to be more on the critical side. I would say. What are some of your bigger criticisms of TTSA? Well, I'd like to say, like, first of all, it's super interesting that this phenomena generates and regenerates in the same ways. In the fact that, like, you know, it goes through a cyclical time of not being that interesting, and then it hits and becomes really interesting and starts making the headlines of all the newspapers, then it goes away, then it comes back. That part is interesting and is Uh, very commonly, like, it's easy to be seen because you can track it back through newspaper headlines, right? Like, whether it's 52 or 66, like, you see UFOs on the front of every major newspaper. What you don't see that's cyclical is the formation and complete, like, tribal warring that goes on. Like, you have to be in the the trenches as a UFO researcher to see that there are these pro groups and anti groups and then there's factions within those factions and you know the hardest thing i've said this whether it be about ufos ghosts cryptids uh consciousness magic anything that i study the hardest thing i do is try and walk the line between both like i don't really consider myself an anti ttsa guy i think that like whoever is doing good work and putting out good information and getting people to talk about it and constructing large narratives, like that's fascinating and interesting to me. My problem becomes when it divides people into camps. Like that's my biggest criticism of TTSA right now is that it, even today I was like looking at Twitter and looking online and you, you have all of these people Uh, that are super involved and invested in TTSA and talk about UFOs and UAP. And there's a new UFO show on last night and none of them watched it. Yeah. A really good UFO show. (laughs) Yeah. But it's, it's super interesting because like the narrative isn't, Oh, there's only this one group that's making UFOs and UFOs are important. The, The narrative is UFOs are important. That's what like everybody claims to think. Like, I'm interested in UFOs, I study them, I research them, I read the books. Like, everybody mouths that, and everybody says that. But then, like, when I say reach out to people on, like, either, you know, closer to pro-TTSA or just straight up pro-TTSA people, I'm like, did you watch that UFO show last night? And they're like, nope, didn't have time. Nope, forgot about it. Nope, nope, nope. Like, 
that just shows me that their interest in UFOs isn't an interest in UFOs and interested in one factional, one fractional group of UFOs. Yeah, I would tend to agree because this is a broader thing. It's not like one group or one entity should necessarily control the field here. And it seems like at a certain point, community almost looks to somebody to control the field. And it almost seems wrong. It's part of it, you know, like they definitely play a part of it, but controlling the field is not something that like any one group should do. No. And like I said, like, unless people have seen it, like they don't recognize, like this is what happened before, whether it be in the nineties with MUFON and you had these breakaway factions that became like Fufor and like, or if you want to go before that, when you had NICAP and they were fighting with APRO, like you're absolutely right. Like one group should not be in charge. It should be people working together to help expand everyone's knowledge. Not one group is going to expand everyone's knowledge, but us together as a community should be working to expand everyone's knowledge. And I think at least on my end for the big criticism that I have of TTSA is that when it comes to the material that they're working with, they're largely just working with military. And yes. like, and there's a whole nother side to that. And like that's not to say that the military side isn't important, but it almost seems like going so pro TTSA cuts out all of the rest of this phenomenon completely. Yeah, and the you know the narrative is mixed, and I don't maybe it's just because there are people, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way. I know people think that I do. But I think that when people get involved and haven't been involved in the UFO community for a long time, they might not have the time to understand that their arguments are illogical to themselves because you have people who are like, this is high technology on the TTSA side. They're like, this is high technology. It's absolute technology. It's alien technology. It's off world. We have bodies. It's all physically manifested. And then that you also have them who point like, you know, Jacques Vallée is on our side. And it's like, well, then your argument, like, yeah, of course he is, because he wants to investigate recovered materials, and he's always been interested in the technology of it. But, you know, he has always also had that kind of old school, it was called back in the 60s, you know, like, you were a 4D ufologist, right? Like, there was something mm. that was beyond 3D. And, like, his way of thinking is very much 4d and you have all of these people who are like it's only technology there's no consciousness involved but also how put off yeah it feels so weird at least for me when i have people quoting jacques valet stuff at me and then they want to talk about the nuts and bolts stuff and it's not to say that the nuts and bolts stuff there isn't a place for it, but it's just like I don't understand how those two can like mesh in the same sentence. They they don't. Be, largely because Jacques Vallée abandoned that type of thinking in 1966. So, yeah, I mean that's that's when he wrote like arguments against ETH, right? Yeah, I, I mean he literally has a paper about the five <laughs> arguments that to, against ETH. So like, <laughs> what's going on here? I mean, it's so it's things like that that make people like me and people who are a little bit weary, uh, not tired, even though we, I do get tired sometimes, wary, when 
the narrative seems to be being wholly and completely crafted. Like mm-hmm. that's that's something over the past thirty years that I've seen happen over and over and over again, and it never ends up doing anyone any good except for making infighting and causing warring factions. And then the conversation becomes about the people involved and not the phenomena. And you see these lines in like the eighties with all this disinformation stuff being put out there. And it's very reliant on physical objects. It's not reliant on the beyond the ultra terrestrial kind of stuff. So it's like, it's just super frustrating because it just seems like people aren't paying attention. Yeah. And again, you know, my universe is large enough to have physical craft and non-physical craft and, uh, time traveling craft and consciousness craft and ether ships. Like nobody knows, right? All the doors are open. And so when a group of people jump full wholeheartedly into one end of the pool and then say the rest of the pool isn't wet, like it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of moving away from it a little bit, in terms of the stuff that you don't think is getting enough attention, the research that's not getting enough attention, what areas do you think aren't getting the attention they deserve? In the Inside the UFO community, are you speaking? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, humanoids never get covered the way that they should get covered. I have seen a huge uptick in them, and they just don't get covered because they seem to be so silly. Uh, but I think that they're super important. I think that they're, you know, they have a, a very archetypal, folkloric, mythological, they're doing something with how human beings react to other beings. That doesn't get covered enough. I think that the kind of, uh, I don't think that enough people are talking about things like magic and how that has to deal with uh, the technology and the experience of UFOs. And as our grasp of understanding or what seems to be understanding the universe, like looking back, I know that people are like, why do you look back at old cases? Why do you spend so much time looking at old cases? It's because there's still data there that can be mined out because the people at the time were doing the best that they could know as much as we know now. And now we can start to see trends and patterns in those cases that we couldn't see at the time. I just put out an episode about the 1954 French UFO flap and how there was a distinctive pattern. Amy Michelle was able to just, you know, pick out this distinct pattern that these things moved in straight lines. Like they were getting such good reports that you could actually track these UFOs as they moved from place to place to place to place. There's a lot of good value in these old cases and it kind of baffles my mind that people don't go back to them it's as if a lot of people have accepted a more sanitized view of what ufos are yeah and with our technology now the the technology that's available in your phone on your laptop like even in the 60s and 50s and and in the 70s as well when there were occurrences happening they were covered in the newspaper and someone might write a book collecting you know, seven or eight cases because they had to go to a library, they had to look through microfiche and they had to find those cases. And so you have books that are based on, you know, whether you want to call them flaps or whatever, but you have books based on, 
let's say, 10 to 12 occurrences, because that's all they could find at the time. Now you can go to the Library of Congress, you can go to newspapers.com, you can search every newspaper that's available online right now. And in those flaps, you find that there weren't 12 incidents, you can find that there were 30 or 50 incidents. The problem is, is that the people doing the original research back in that time didn't have access to the internet. Exactly. And especially now, I think I, I think one of the most amazing things is that we, we have databases online where you could go pour through old flying saucer reviews. You could go look through the old APRO bulletins and all that stuff. And I can only imagine how those people must feel now that, you know, there is that vast collective of information that wasn't there in the past that you may not have been able to make those connections. So it's kind of interesting to think in a way we don't we don't find those trends these days or maybe we're just not looking for them what does that say about like the way that cases are investigated like how do you think that's changed over the years because people don't talk about the flaps flaps as much anymore and talked about the humanoid cases people don't talk about that why do you think that has changed I think, so the great thing is that we have this technology, the internet, and we can do research quickly and we can find all of the newspapers and that's great and I think it's awesome. I think those resources are absolutely fundamental to, like you were saying, finding trends and, and seeing how things develop. My background, the way that I've always had to do things because I started before the internet, like the humanoid cases that I've been studying over the, the past seven, eight months now, those are all based on the fact that I went and interviewed people that I took the time. I left my house and drove to a place and talked to people. And, you know, when you're talking to someone who's telling you this very weird encounter where they see a light and they see a humanoid and they don't know what's going on, that's one person, right? You have to be willing to do something which sounds really insane to people, but is important to me, which is I then walk around the neighborhood and knock on doors and ask other neighbors if they saw something that night. And because I do that, I find other neighbors who see things. And then you can start to see, oh, yes, collecting information off of the internet and looking through newspapers and books is great, but you also have to talk to people. You have to go somewhere. You have, you have to be boots on the ground at a certain point to, to, to kind of dig these cases out. And it's tough, and like it just doesn't seem like those kind of investigators are out there. And maybe part of that is just the way that MUFON has streamlined their approach to the fact where you have people fill out a report, it gets sent to their CMS, then they can either call, email, or whatever, but it's just it's kind of a one-and-done situation. At least that's how I kind of took things when I was there for the brief period that I was. It's a strange thing to see because it's definitely a more, we almost have a more sanitized version of this phenomenon now, and it's still more complicated than we probably give it credit for. So, I don't know, like, is it it only going to get more sanitized from here, or is it just going to be somebody else is going to take over? We're looking for, you know, like TTSA, they're like, are people just going to look to them to like solve this whole thing. Yes. I mean, the simple answer to that is yes. 
Like people are looking for someone else to do what they think is the hard work, which is driving around and talking to people, which is actually the easy work. Like if you're a normal, somewhat well-adjusted human being and someone calls you about a UFO and or emails you, which happens to me, like it's easy if you're a somewhat rational human being to figure out if someone is making something up or if they had a valid experience, like you can tell pretty quickly if you've done it enough. Uh, your first couple, you know, tries around, you might make some mistakes. That's absolutely fine. It's a learning curve. But going out and talking to people is easy. Like we do it all the time. We go to bars, we go to restaurants, you talk to people and you talk to people about weird stuff. Uh, a lot of times you talk to absolute complete strangers when you go to a bar or a restaurant or you're just out in public seeing a movie, you, you will you have a natural predisposition as a human being to talk to other human beings. That's why people love podcasts so much because it's people talking. I just don't understand why everybody is afraid to do it and everyone is waiting for someone else to do it. Do you think that's kind of like a commentary on the culture that we live in? Because it just seems like a lot more people are, I don't know, introverted, I guess. Yeah, I think people are introverted, but when you show a genuine interest in their story, people will tell them to you. Uh, I mean, you know, like I said, in one instance, a gentleman gave me a humanoid encounter, and I walked around his neighborhood, and in the course of a day, I found three other people in that neighborhood that had not a humanoid encounter, but saw the light he was talking about, uh, that night had... Um, a very odd experience that didn't include a humanoid, but I figure that was probably involved since it happened on the same night around the same time. Like it's, it's just talking to people then walking up to someone's door and saying like, I know it, again, it sounds crazy, but knocking on someone's door and saying, Hey, I'm in the neighborhood because I got a report of a flying saucer. Have you ever seen anything like that? And even if they don't give you a report from the night that you want, they might feel predisposed to tell you a UFO encounter that they had that they've never told anyone in their entire life because you're there and you're asking. Now, sure, people are going to slam the door in your face or get off my porch. That happens a lot, too. But you're looking for information. You're digging out information. And sometimes when you dig, you get a little dirty. Yeah, absolutely. And the nature of rejection, I think, is something that, I don't know, at least my generation takes probably harder than it should. <laughs> <laughs> but could you talk a little bit more, because you were talking about this with me on Twitter, the the humanoid sightings that, uh, that you had been collecting. Like, uh, can you just talk a little bit about those? Sure. So um, I'm actually thinking that I should probably put that all put them all together and just publish them this year because it was mostly last year they seem to have dropped off uh, pretty quickly but starting in December of 2017 we're in 2019 right so 2017 yep. uh, I got three three emails all within probably seven days of each other of people who had experienced UFOs um, and two of the three had humanoid encounters. And uh, they weren't from anywhere close to each other. And I kind of sniffed them out to make sure to see if they were friends or had known each other. You know, I did what I do on Facebook and the internet. Again, there's your technology working for you. And mm -hmm. they didn't seem to have any connections whatsoever. Uh, and it's true, they didn't have any connections. And then I started looking 
uh, into their cases. And while I was looking into their cases, I started finding more. And then in January, I found two more. In February, I found, I think, three. And then it really escalated up until there were like, I found six cases in June of 2018. And that was kind of the high point. One for one month, there were six. And then it slowly started to die off with a little peak near September. Um, but these aren't the same. And in some instances, there seem to be a similar humanoid, but uh, the majority of them are just these bizarre creatures. You know, one was described as kind of like a, uh, a box covered in tinfoil, which was floating down the street and passed through a tree and then passed through a chain link fence and then seemed to be aware that it was being watched and came toward the person who was looking at it, came toward their house, and as it came toward their house, it kind of faded and uh, just winked out of existence. That is bizarre. You don't hear about these types of encounters anymore. It's just so very strange to hear, and it's, it harkens back to kind of the some of the stuff that was going on in 73 and a uh, little of the stuff that was going on in 54. It seems like every... Uh, so many years, uh, th these things happen. People see these very strange beings. And the way that you were describing some of them, it's not something I've ever read before. Is it something you've ever come across before? You know, as I deep dive, I can find things that seem to be similar. But, you know, again... I'm relying on older reporting, so I don't know what's being left out and what isn't being left out of those reports. I don't mm -hmm. want to say that they're absolutely uniquely new, but there are some that do not have any kind of analog. There's one in particular which was spotted twice by two different people who live in the same city but don't know each other, and they live about a mile apart. And that creature in particular sounded a lot like the Pascagoula alien. Uh, so that both people at separate times when they saw this creature, one said that it looked like it was wrapped in long bubbles, like balloons and bubbles that went around its whole body. And the other person said that it looked like they were wrapped in PVC, like flexible PVC piping. And both people said that it had legs but was floating about a foot to a foot and a half off of the ground and that it seemed to have mechanical arms yeah that's just bizarre that's just <laughs> that's the best way to describe it and they're like it, 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 how do you how do you quantify something like that <laughs> well i mean it's it sounds insane right and when i'm listening to a person tell it to me the first time and I'm like, wow, this is really crazy. Like, it kind of sounds like Pascagoula. Like, um, and I'm just going through all of my internal information in my head while I'm listening to the first experiencer. And then, you know, a week and a half later, I'm talking to a completely different person a mile away who lives in the same city who basically tells me that they've seen the exact same thing. And now I'm like, okay, so now what is that thing? If two independent observers who don't know each other and haven't told each other their story are seeing this insanely bizarre thing and both feel like they can talk to me about that story, 
that's another interesting point, too, because people are having these humanoid encounters of these super bizarre creatures and are open to talking about them. They need to tell them to someone. And, you know, whether or not they at first feel like they can't discuss it, it's almost cathartic to them to be able to say, I saw this incredibly bizarre thing. Yeah, because who who do you tell in that kind of situation you know can you tell a loved one something like that and i don't i don't think a lot of people think that they can kind of moving on from that because <laughs> if i keep if i keep going on man my, my brain's just gonna like fail me i was actually like i said uh, i and i i actually started kind of laying it out and putting it together i'm actually looking here on my computer right now to give you the actual numbers because i was graphing it out I think I'm going to end up putting out this year uh, maybe a 70 or 80 page collection just of what they are. The other thing that I've been doing too is I've had every single witness, whether they are artistic or not, do the best sketch that they can do for me. And then mm -hmm. I had them sit with a friend of mine who is an artist and had them des describe to my friend what it looked like and until it matched what they thought that they saw. So in December, there were three encounters. In January, there were two. In February, excuse me, there was zero. So February was the, the null point. By March, there were three. April was four, five. June, there's six. July is four. And then two, 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 one, one, and zero. And it's dead by the end of the year. I, I can't wait for this report, man. You, you, got, me, you got me pumped for it. And, and it's not often I'm pumped for, like, UFO reports, because it's not often you get good UFO reports. <laughs> and, and I know you, and pictures of crazy things. I love the pictures. Like, part of the fun of, uh, and, and folks, if you have not looked at this document, it's, it is great. Go on to the QFOS website, search for a document called uh, 1973, Year of the Humanoids. There are some fun pictures in that thing. There are just fun drawings of just crazy looking humanoids and and i think one of the most fun things about that uh era and that year is that it wasn't very homogenous it, it was varied in what people saw primarily you know in the u.s but like just so very crazy and and, and i love it i do <laughs> the uh I, 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 just before we leave humanoids, the one that uh, came up the most, I think, was four different instances. Uh, there was this uh, being that was said to be about four feet tall, dressed in like a bodysuit, like a tan or gray bodysuit seen at night. So hard to determine the color. It could be like a, a, a light green or even a light blue, but dressed in a bodysuit, floating instead of walking. A lot of these things are floating and then uh, with three glowing lights where its eyes should be. Now, none of the people actually called those three lights the eyes, but they all put it in the position on the head where the eyes should be. Yeah, weird. Just weird. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I do. I do, too. Um, so uh, kind of getting into the uh, John Tenney recommends uh, questions here because I've got a few and then we're going to get into some uh, listener questions, because I did get quite a few. Who are some of the researchers that you would recommend to people right now and that are doing good work and that people should really look into? 
It's interesting because I would look into, uh, you know, whether or not I have some difficulties, and I do with Jacques Vallée, like people should always read his stuff and listen to things that he says and look at his diaries. There's a ton of information there that's, I think, super important to what we're doing. I think that whether or not this people think these things apply to UFOs either, I think that people should really be looking at uh, what Rupert Sheldrake talks about when he's talking about, and not just so much about the consciousness of plants and things like that. But I mean, he's talking about uh, how fields interact with each other and how when he talks about a morphogenetic field or a life field, I think the work that he does showing how things correlate and relate to each other naturally through what seem to be these fe- in, in, engaged in energetic fields, I think that's really important. So Rupert Sheldrake, I would even go so far as to say, and again, some of these people I know are slightly controversial for one reason or another, but like Matthew Fox, who's a former Anglican priest who talks about angels and the physicality of angels, uh, that I think is important to us. And then, you know, when you get off, I think Patrick Harper who it writes a lot of really deep, interesting things that have to do with folklore mythology and how those engage and interact with us on a day-to-day level and that we might not realize. So I guess just right off the top of my head, Matthew Fox, Rupert Sheldrake, Jacques Vallée, Patrick Harper. Uh, there's a, a bunch of other authors out there that's doing stuff. Josh is right. Josh Kutchin is writing a book on, you know, the paranormality of Bigfoot, which I think is going to be interesting. There's, I, I think, uh, was Cripple, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, I think that's really interesting for people to read. You know, I tell people too, like, I, again, I don't have biases. I think that Lavenda is interesting for people to read. I think that uh, reading about the occult and how that ties into UFO phenomena is super important. So there's a little list of, of people and a wide range of things for them to read. Yeah, it's that's definitely a, a good list to go on, especially since you're you're kind of touching on a good portion of people that you know a lot of like the maybe even the novice researcher, the the novice person interested in this might not know about. So you know that's that's definitely a a good place to go from. And I even mentioned a guy who wrote a book with Tom DeLonge. You you did you did, um, which kind of brings me to uh, another interesting point. I wasn't going to ask a question about this, and it, it just Peter Lavenda he kind of brings it out because I, I've read a good portion of the the first nonfiction to the stars book, and it seems like a lot of researchers go towards this kind of i I don't want to say ancient aliens kind of vibe right but they go into the past and they just start picking out stuff and i mean i've even done that on my own podcast i've looked at stuff that's you know kind of interesting like the the james everill account from 16 Mm -hmm. 30 something and stuff like that do you think there is value in looking into these old historical accounts and looking for ufos or other types of phenomena yeah, I mean, I, they're interesting, right? I mean, I, ancient alien stuff is problematic because it becomes racist really quick, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, saying, oh, well, uh, you know, ancient non-Europeans, there's no way that they could have done this because, 
we're smart now and we can't do it. So obviously they weren't smarter than us. So they must have had help from aliens. I mean, that is one of those things that never gets talked about on shows and on Twitter a lot. Like people shy away from it. Right. But I think, mm-hmm. but I think it is interesting. I think it's, uh, I recently read a Cherokee story, uh, which I found super interesting that I had never read before about, a, a woman who appears over a lake as a bright shining star and asks uh, a young warrior, what form should I take because I want to marry you? And he gets scared because he sees her in a dream and he wakes up out of the dream and asks the rest of the people around him, uh, did you see the star last night? And they said, yes, it lives in the lake. And like just reading these Cherokee stories about like, so are they having, you know, spiritual or, or deeply um, psychological experiences that are formative to them? Or, like, why is everyone in the village seeing a giant star hang over a lake? And they know that the star lives at the bottom of the lake. Like, there's just a lot of interesting things there to think about. I don't know how much data you can mine out of it. But to know that people have been telling these stories about bright lights in the sky and dream experiences with... Uh, ethereal beings, knowing that that's gone on for centuries is, I mean, unbelievably important to our research. Even when you go back into the not too, not incredibly distant past, but like uh, when you look at the John Martin sighting in 1878, that I think is a sighting that doesn't get the the significance that it should it's a brief sighting, yes, but it's a farmer in 1878, and he sees a a disc fly over his head at really fast speed. Right. So what the hell could do that in 1878? <laughs> yeah, and and just why? Again, people lacking, and, and I'm not saying that they're dumber. I'm just saying that they lack the vocabulary to talk about what they're talking about. Like when people say, like a, a giant bird. Uh, you know, before there were airplanes or just seeing something in the sky. Like there is something, there is value to their experience all these years later because that, you know, that was in Texas, right? John Martin's sighting. Is that right? Yep. So like, has anyone ever dug through the newspapers of 1870? I don't know if they have. I mean, I'm sure someone might have, but dug through all of the newspapers for that area of Texas or in the area around where John Martin was in the 1870s and see if anybody else mentioned anything strange, not exactly what he experienced, because that's a lot of the time not what happens, but to see if there are any other strange incidents. Was something found? Um, Did someone new come into town? Because that gets often reported in the paper. I don't think that people really understand that either if you look through old newspapers and from the 1800s they'll tell you like you know john tenney left town for two days you'll see a little blurb in a newspaper that'll say uh two men from new york arrived like just look for things like that because there might be some info you could gather and you might be able to find a new flap that no one's ever found before yeah i mean you never know where you could find story or 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 anything like I just did a Patreon bonus episode about this letter that H.P. Lovecraft wrote in the 20s that he had this dream where he was a Civil War surgeon and he was home on on furlough and he ran into an old friend who showed him what he believed were dismembered alien body parts. 
<laughs> and then a researcher in 1997 for whatever reason decides to go on a hunch to see if he could find verification to this a dream of hb lovecraft okay right. you're looking for verification in that and he finds some verification in it so i mean you never know where you're gonna find it yeah <laughs> next up on the john tenney recommends what are some uh get into the the physical media here the books the documentaries the uh the TV series, whatever, whatever you want to recommend. What do you recommend to people to go check out? So I am one of those people who I love this stuff, right? Like it's my life. Like I love it. I think about it. I consume it at every level. Weirdness is who I am. That's why I do this. Not to find answers just because I love it. And if, if an answer were to be found, of course, that's great. But it's like, I watch everything. If something like I wanted as a kid, I wanted there to be this many television shows on that were about weird things. And now mm -hmm. there are. So it's like watch them because whether or not it's real, they might be faking some stuff, whatever. You don't have to believe everything you see on television. But the, the concept is that you might see something that on a random terrible ghost show or a random terrible Bigfoot or monster show or a random terrible UFO show, you might see something that sparks within you a new idea that mm -hmm. you might put together something that you have in your brain that you see on this terrible television show. And together that combinatorial idea is something that no one has thought of, or you're going to be the one because you think you came up with that idea that deep dives that idea and, and starts to explore it. And so, like, to be completely honest, like, I don't really have anything against the unidentified show, except that I think it's really boring. I think that it, it's uh, not very engaging. It's not very exciting. I, I think it's fine. I watch it because it's a UFO show, but it's, I don't think that audiences are going to be lit just because of the way that it's shot. I just watched Alien Highway, which I thought was super fun. It was people with boots on the ground, like just going out and trying to find what was going on with these aliens and UFOs. And like, that was fun for me because I like going out and doing that type of thing. There are going to be a lot more. I mean, there's, uh, I think three more UFO shows coming this year. And I think there's about six more ghost shows coming. And then like, four general paranormal shows coming on top of that. So you're, I mean, we're going to be swamped with them in about two or three months. You can't go wrong with some paranormal television. Cause yeah, I remember in like, even in 2004, all you really had was you had ghost hunters. You had, um, I think you had most haunted yep. at that point. Yeah. I think, the Discovery Channel was doing a haunting at that time. Yeah. But that's that's about it. Yeah. So it's it's definitely blown up. It's a, it's a boom now. Yeah, the last time we had this many shows on, I think, was 2010 or 2011. I think in, I have a document that I keep about shows that are on somewhere in my office up here. Um, but I think in 2011, I think there were 13 paranormal shows on at any one time. Like you had most haunted was still on ghost hunters was still on ghost adventures was on mountain monsters, finding Bigfoot, ancient aliens. Um, there was paranormal cops. There was, 
God, I, I can't even remember how many shows that were still going. Paranormal State was still on. Yeah, I mean, so there were, these are, again, this is like a, another cyclical portion of, of people's general interest. Like, you know, 10 years ago, it was super high, and now we're 10 years later, and it's coming back again. The the cycle repeats itself. It just, it always does. It always comes back. And I'll, and I'll tell you, the cycle sinks uh, general interest. I mean, that's another thing that people should be aware of, is that as more and more shows come out, networks are going to sink a ton of money into them. Not in any one show, but in all of them, like just across their network. They're going to see that people are interested. They're going to create a bunch of shows. They're Because they're creating a bunch of shows and they're just throwing money at stuff, uh, they're going to fail. And then the network isn't going to want to make shows like that anymore. And then they're going to drop off. And then you're going to have two or three that are on. And that's that's the cycle of how television uh, generates popularity. Yeah, we'll get into some of these um, Twitter questions. And some of them are from uh, some interesting characters that uh, we seem to interact with every day. Of course, the, uh, the first one is from Tim Banal. So... <laughs> You know, it's a good question, or at least it's a, it's an entertaining one. Tim asks, do you think that the government might know what happens when you die, but they're keeping it a secret because they don't want to fundamentally alter the human condition? <laughs> it's a good that's it, you know what it's a good question. It is, it's a, such a Tim Banal question. It is, a, too. it is a good question. I actually years ago, I used to do uh, when I was doing a lot of conspiracy lectures because that's what people wanted. I would talk about the fact that there is a, not a conspiracy because I don't think it's real, but there is an idea that floats around in researchers head, especially, especially um, theological researchers, uh, researchers who specialize in religion. The idea that the churches, the major churches of the world know that there's nothing after this. They've spent the money, they've spent the time, they've figured it out, and they know that this is it. Like, once you die, you are dead. And they treat and react to the world in a manner that keeps them in power. And that's a control system for telling people that there is an afterlife. And so they're actually, you know, doing uh, the work of convincing people that there is something more because if people knew for a fact right now that there was nothing, you would descend into madness. Like if people realized there were actually no consequences for anything they did and once they died, they were dead and then that's it, people would run amok. Uh, they would realize that, oh, I can just be a bad guy. There's absolutely no punishment. You know, we have this kind of idea that human beings are good. But there are a lot of human beings who, when you realize that there's no good and there's no bad, that those are just social constructs that in the overall scheme of universality, there is just randomness, chaos, and then nothing. That is far more world-altering and paradigm-shifting than finding out that there's aliens. Yeah, it gets to the core. It totally messes you up and... Yeah, I, I've gone there in my mind before, so I know how that goes. <laughs> I've gone there too, sure. My retirement plan is prison. <laughs> I don't have any kind of retirement plan. I don't have any kind of good insurance. I don't have kids to take care of me when I get older. Like, I'll just 
you know, not kill anyone, but I'll just do something to get myself in a lot of trouble. If I live to be like 70, right? When I'm 70, mm-hmm. I'll do something that'll get me like 30 years in prison. And then I'll have a place to sleep and I'll be an old man. So people won't really mess around with me. Plus I'll probably be just completely whacked out talking about UFOs and ghosts the whole time. And so people will just leave me alone. Cause I'm kind of crazy babbling old man who shot a bunch of people when he was 70. And then I'll have medical and dental and all of that. So that's my retirement plan. You know, it's, 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 um, (laughs) I think it's more worthy than like, like the way that Bill Cooper went out. It's definitely more worthy than that, John. Right. (laughs) The next question, um, comes from Blake at monster talk. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, going to be full of either puns. Oh Yeah. So, uh, he has a question about the pronunciation of your name. Uh, am I supposed to pronounce his name as John E. L. Tenney or as L. Tenney, which sounds like one of Zorro's occasional adversaries? Okay, so my name is John Elmer Leonard Tenney. I have two middle names. So, it is John E. L. Tenney. Now, I'll send you, as a because I know you, as a researcher, you like to spiral into rabbit holes. So do. you do. So you know, uh, as well as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, that there are words and they seem to come up over and over again, very synchronistically or coincidentally, whatever you want to call them. And they seem to like, you know, Lauren Coleman talks about them. And there are other researchers who talk about that words have meaning and power. Um, and so I will tell you that one of the things that I have always been fascinated with in the sense of words is the ancient God. One of the oldest names that we have for God is L E L. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is where we get the basis for angelic names like Gabriel and Michael and Uriel and Elohim and all of these names that have E L in them. And so one of the reasons that I like to use my middle initials is to also be a part of that weird spiral of el words and if you want to spiral you should start watching for that in ufo lore oh my my brain's gonna break i know it's gonna break now (laughs) it's like a reeves thing yeah (laughs) (laughs) definitely also really quickly also i did love as a kid the fact my favorite superhero is uh superman right so i loved also that i i was yeah i I was john l yeah uh, I was going to say, I knew you were go- where you were going there. <laughs> Shanna Banana asks, she's dying to know, if you have any further trail cam evidence of a tree in one photo than missing in another. Oh, yeah, I have lots now. I have probably 40. Um, do you know what she's talking about? I don't. So uh, one of the phenomena that I've been studying probably now for two years is... I recently moved my parents in with me and my dad has trail cams set up all over their property up north and he likes to look at the deer and the bear and the raccoons from his trail cams. Now, anyone who has trail cams know that those trail cams trigger a a lot. And so on an SD card, he'll have 1500 photographs. So he was like, pick out the best ones. And, you know, he's got seven or eight trail cams. Each SD card has 1,500 pictures in it. So I'm basically just flicking through them fast, uh, almost watching them as if they were a movie. This was started about two years ago. And I noticed, what I seemed to notice, 
that sometimes the trees in the background change uh, just in one frame. So like I'll be flipping through, looking, 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 and then something was different in that last one, go back and look, and there's, a, a for instance, a tree. Um, maybe about, this was the first one I ever saw, uh, maybe about a foot and a half in diameter. Obviously, it goes up out of the view. The top of it is tall enough to go outside the view of the camera. Um, and in one photograph, it's just gone. And then it's back in the next photograph. So I started looking through all of my dad's trail cams and then gathering SD cards from his friends who all have trail cams and their friends who have. And trees seem to pop in and out of existence. Well, damn. <laughs> that's that's fascinating, man. Like it, It's really bizarre. And I tell mm -hmm. everybody when I tell people this completely crazy sounding thing, like set up a trail cam in the woods and let it sit for a month and then go and look. And a very large percentage of the time you will see a tree, a bush, uh, something pop away in one of the photographs and then pop back in the way that I think about it in my head. It's almost like, uh, do you play video games at all? I do. Yes. It's almost like a video game in the fact that like they make like a hundred trees and then those hundred trees are only where your character is looking. Right. And it seems like who would notice uh, when you drive to work every single day and you're passing 400 trees along the side of the road, would you ever notice if one of them was gone? Would you ever notice if two of them were exactly the same? Like, of course not, because you're not paying attention to them. And it's almost as if the universe is conserving energy by not always having all of the same amount of trees or things in one area. And that's a... Uh... Dude, you're breaking my brain right now. I can't handle that. <laughs> but that's but that's fascinating, especially to put it into that kind of context because that that could kind of make sense. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Danny Cabe, he asks, of all the creatures that you have researched, which would you like to have a conversation with, and which would you be terrified of? Um, of creatures that I've researched. A few years ago, when I saw what I what I call the elf, I would love to be able to have a conversation with that thing, that weird 11 to 12 inch tall hoofed creature that I briefly saw once out in the woods. Uh, I would love to talk to that thing or communicate with it telepathically or however I would communicate with it. I don't think that there's anything I'd be afraid to try and communicate with. There's... Again, I, I love to talk. I love talking to people. I talk to dogs and cats, whether they talk back or not. I talk to trees. I talk to the wind. Like, I don't know, you know, if I would be scared to talk to a creature. My go-to would be to, to try and talk to it. Even throughout my life, uh, when I get into situations with other human beings where someone wants to fight me or is mad at me, uh, I want to talk to them. I don't want to run away from them. And that's a good attitude to have. Um, because I think, you know, like you, you bring your fear with you wherever you go. And like, at what point can the curiosity kind of take over? Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I get afraid of things. Um, I think that fear is a, you know, it's there for a reason. It's to keep you safe. But, uh, 
you know, even I, I, I tell people all the time, like, I, I really do feel like I'll probably end up dying in a bear attack because I love bears so much. And when I see one, like, I, I'm going to want to hug it. Um, and that's probably not a great idea if I'm out in the woods and I see a bear. Like, I'm not dumb. But also, if something seems intelligent and like it can communicate with me, uh, some weird paranormal or supernatural creature, like, I'm going to want to communicate with it. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, that's respectful, because I, I, I'm i not... I, this is probably the most conversation I've had with anybody in quite a while, so I, I'm definitely not... I'm not I'm not a conversationalist most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you love to talk, though, don't you? Yeah, when I, when I can connect with someone, I definitely like to talk. <laughs> Taylor asks, what is the most credible account of high strangeness in your opinion the most credible account of high strangeness um i mean whether it's ufos ghosts or creatures i have always stated at my lectures that these events are personalized a lot of times they're individualized they're meant for the experiencer and so when it becomes to a, a level of credibility, I have very little right to tell a person what they've experienced in reality. Uh, I wasn't there. I wasn't there for the experience. I've had a lot of strange experiences that I don't expect anyone to believe. And so, I mean, I think I wrote an article about this, too, on, on weird lectures, right? Like your story Whatever it is, no matter how small it is, your weird story is enough. It doesn't have to be any stranger. You don't have to have more and more experiences. They don't, you're not, it's not a competition with people. I think that any weird story is as valid as any other weird story. Yeah, and I think it's important to accept a story at its face value at, at the very least and then... You know, people are going to take away what they want from that, ultimately, in the end. Because, I mean, if you go back and you look at the 70s kind of early abduction accounts that, like, when it really started to take off in the in the 70s, a lot of those are just very strange. They don't have grays in them they have one guy was abducted by three weird looking machines right. and you you have um one that was abducted by things that had mushroom shaped heads that had webbed hands i mean it, it, like those cases are beyond you know strange for me they're they're beyond uh for me to comprehend but at the end of the day like why what makes uh, <laughs> their cases any you know, what does the strangeness uh, ultimately do? And I mean, like, if you um, look at J. Allen Hynek, um, you know, a lot of people talk about the uh, close encounter scale, but they never talk about the fact that he had an index that he would use to gauge the reliability of a report. Right. And the, um, I think it was the strangeness probability index is what he called it mm -hmm. but, uh, he gave everything a number rating and you know he had standards and everything like that and like it it, it seems like people want to do that but but i think 
ultimately you have to accept it at face value well, at least at least for me well here's the thing right like you don't you don't have to believe anyone mm-hmm. their experience is their experience it doesn't have to be yours and you don't have to believe it that's up to you what's interesting to me is even if someone is making a story up if they're completely fabricating it what's interesting to me is where did that idea come from why are they fabricating it? How did they come up with the idea to fabricate it? Um, where did they get the visualization of the experience, the tactile sensations of the experience? Where did that within them or what were they reading? What were they looking at? Like th- those are interesting to me too. What was it about that person's life that triggered them to want to make up the experience? Like those are all very fascinating aspects of this phenomena too. I completely agree because... I've done episodes on him, but uh, I tend to wonder what makes a guy like Ed Walters do what he did. Right. Yeah. What are the motivations? That's that's almost well in you know golf breeze like that's as fascinating as golf breeze. Why would you do that? Like, why would you subject yourself and your family and the people around you to that for no real good reason? None whatsoever, and I mean, like, you took it so far that you had to change your own dang name and move away. Right, yeah. <laughs> of course, uh, I, I will be the first to admit they didn't do a very good job of changing their name, because we tracked them down and we know what their names are. Right. But... <laughs> <laughs> like I said, whether it's any, like, that's what's, that's, that's fascinating to me, too. Whether it's Golf Breeze, or whether it's Billy Meyer or George Adamski, like, when people go off the rails, that's just as fascinating, too. Like, was the, did they have a single experience that triggered them into wanting more experiences? Did they just want to be a part of a larger group? Did they want to be the head of a larger group? Did they feel their life was out of control, so they want to be the leader of a group? Like, what is it about the human condition that makes certain people do those things? Either you're, you've got too much time on your hands, or um, you're you're into some stuff. And like, I think a lot of people, the way that uh, they equate it is, something happened to them in their life that they wanted to kind of bring more legitimacy to. Sure. Well, how does faking a bunch of stuff bring more legitimacy to it? All it just really does is bring a little more attention, and that fades after a while. But yeah, it's it's so amazing to me because people are like, they just want. They just want to be noticed, so they're going to make up this story. Um, but then they do, do. Do they also lack the ability to see what's going to happen if they continue to tell this lie over the rest of their life? The entirety of the rest of their life, they're going to have to tell this lie. They they don't forward think it that much. That's a really interesting part of the human psyche. It really is, because, I mean, it's not like there are those that didn't profit off that. I mean, Frank Frank Strangest profited off that until his dying day right. in 2008. And I, I don't know how many people subscribe to his newsletter, but, I mean, $125 a year for a newsletter. Right. Wow. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, John, this, is, this has been great, man. Uh, I appreciate you coming back on. 
Can you just uh, tell people what you got coming up and uh, where they can uh, stay updated on uh, uh, all the new stuff you got going on? Yeah, I mean, I've tried to make it easy for everyone. Twitter is John E.L. Tenney. Instagram is John E.L. Tenney. Facebook is John E.L. Tenney. The website is Weird Lectures. Um, And I always tell people if you just go to Google and you type uh, John Weirdo, a lot of the times you'll just track right back to me. but yeah, I mean, I'm always here. I'm, and I'm so glad we got to talk again. I, I really do like interacting with the people that I digitally interact with online. I like to be able to hear their voices and hear the fact that you're having a little bit of fun. Uh, so thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And uh, until we meet again, have a good night, folks.